Children who have experienced complex trauma often have difficulty identifying, expressing, and managing emotions. They also may have limited language to describe feeling that way. For many young people, black boys especially, this trauma is compounded and caused by a range of systemic barriers. How does COVID-19 affect students already managing many stressors? What's the impact of school closure and loss of routine on lives of those typically unburdened? And how do we continue to support students in an environment like this? Join me and my two guests as we discuss student trauma in a global pandemic. Dr. Joseph Smith and Mandy Pakan join us on this episode of School Talk. You know, there's always this misunderstanding that, you know, trauma is this very scary event that happens to an individual, Um, you know, and experiences can be threatening and overwhelming, but it's really what is trauma is what happens inside of us, you know, during an event, you know, um, being able to cope in the face of adversity, um, which is a privilege in itself. Right. Mm -hmm. And how did your work, Joseph, um, involve Like, how did you get to the point where you're working with young people and the traumas that they face have to be kind of incorporated in your approach to that work? Like, how did you get to the point of kind of addressing the trauma in lives of young people? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, my background is in education. I'm a trained teacher. I can teach from K to 12 uh, within the TDSB primarily right now. So I have a contract position with a high school. And my experiences growing up within schools because in many respects i've spent my entire life in school from being a part of one and then educating in one and then phd life working in schools uh, university sorry professing uh i never really had a lecturer or an educator engage me in a way that was trauma-informed and that was in that would have been very helpful to my particular case given where i've come from Um, Growing up, I had a lot of varied experiences and that I would deem traumatic and those, of course, reverberate across time um, and space. And so I didn't know how to address those things. And they kind of opened up um, when I was in high school in grade 10. And I started to do a lot of different things that um, had me categorized as at risk. And luckily, I did meet one teacher who didn't necessarily have a trauma informed pedagogy, but he was just relatable and, and was able to have um, very meaningful conversations with me to kind of expose some of the issues I was dealing with and then engage me with content and material that could help me alleviate those issues. Um, and that experience itself, that exchange between myself and that teacher and how liberating it was, had me thinking throughout my undergraduate um, degrees and then my teaching degree of how could I bring that experience to the classroom. And I realized there's a lot of issues surrounding bringing that kind of I don't know, pseudo counseling exchange in your teaching pedagogy. So I said, you know what, I want to start something that um, could actually cater to the kids that come from my neighborhood that I know are dealing with a lot of mental health issues as a result of um, and systemic anti-Black racism and classism. Right. So, you know, it just came about where we start off with about six boys in a gym playing basketball and then having conversations after that, brave conversations, mind you. And it just um, escalated into what it is now with hundreds of youth across the GTA being impacted by the programming that we offer. Um, and it's primarily around just giving them the language of emotional intelligence and helping them um, examine themselves and figure out what their issues are. And then we can refer them to people if their issues are beyond our ability to meet. 
Right. That's super cool. I, I like that you are in schools and doing that practice. I know Mandy mm-hmm. is, um, she's also taking a, a similar role. And Mandy, you can speak on a little bit more in terms of um, your impact on Black youth in particular and their, the traumas that they may have experienced. How did you get into your role? Uh, and I know it's an organization that you're a part of that can you speak more to when and how you impact their lives? Is it in school, after school? Um, yeah. So so my main role, um, I do work in the schools as a psychotherapist. And a lot of my work is to work with racialized young men, uh, just the racialized communities. Um, and then we have the uh, a side project that I'm working on, which I'm leading is a street resilience project. And that one is very central to the trauma-informed piece that Joseph was talking about. And it's really um, about, um, you know, understanding the roots uh, of how, why young men are involved in street-level activities. And we really do that, um, you know, really ground ourselves in the trauma-informed piece of expanding that narrative and moving away from, you know, asking the question of what's wrong with you to, you know, what's happened to you. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of my work is really... Um, you know, normalizing their experiences, but really I look at it from a trauma perspective of how their experiences, whether it's adverse childhood experiences, have actually led up to it and how as systems we continue to dehumanize them and kind of push them towards this uh, lifestyle, right? Um, So a lot of my support is around there um, and uh, being that healthy adult role model for them um because a lot of the, a lot of times what we see is that they do come from broken homes and they don't have healthy um relationships with adults so i've seen that as a very crucial part of the work that i do right i, I like how you phrased it you ask more so um what has happened and does does something have to happen directly to a young person or a person for trauma to affect them or could it be um the impact on someone else that affects them and the traumas that they see uh joseph what do you what's your answer for that yeah absolutely not it can be indirect um it doesn't have to be direct at all um of course and i know mandy would speak to this too there are micro traumas macro traumas there's all sorts of ways we can categorize a traumatic experience for somebody um and the ways they can categorize it for themselves, but I've dealt with youth, like let's say in my early 20s when I was working at an um, organization called Beyond 330 um, in Driftwood um, in the James Finch area, and the kids I was dealing with on a regular basis were dealing with issues where they, on their way to school, saw, pardon me, a dead body in the Grand Ravine area, wow. and so they wouldn't, they would, let's say, glamorize the experience, brag about it, talk about how interesting and cool it was and how um, courageous and makes them look. But then you would see um, the, let's say, the manifestation of that experience come out when they're playing with people um, their age or when they're engaging with adults. And of course, there's a whole host of other factors that can contribute to their behaviors manifesting the way they do. But you can see that there is uh, a correlation between being subjected to seeing um, instances of violence or, let's say, the aftermath of violence and then the behaviors that they, that would take place in a day-to-day, a regular basis. And some people were immediately impacted by that experience, and, they, and we had to call in counselors because um, weeks after they were having nightmares and, and weird dreams, and other kids weren't um, as, as, sorry, as explicitly um, dealing with the aftermath of that experience. And those ones, you just see like the minutia of their behaviors change and the way they interact with people. And, and if you didn't have 
let's say an ear to pick up on those pieces mm -hmm. you wouldn't know that there could be um a bit of trauma um ricocheting as a result of this issue that they yeah they went through yeah I, I definitely think that your academic or lived experiences with trauma would help you to better um address some of the things that you you might see on a day-to-day -day basis yeah. a teacher or um, a person working with young people mandy how has how has trauma affected historically disenfranchised communities and what do, what does that look like in in reality on a day-to-day -day basis yeah. Um, so, you know, there's always this uh, Western notion or understanding when it comes to trauma, and we're always so focused around, you know, experiences of, you know, violence and abuse, um, but also, mm -hmm. you know, we ignore experiences like poverty, racism, and discriminations yep. as forms of trauma, yep. um, and especially with post-traumatic stress, you know, for racialized or marginalized communities, you know, there is no post. The experience of trauma continues <laughs> to exist in the lives of uh, yep. disenfranchised communities. So. Um, you know, how I see it is that there are layers and layers um, of trauma and we're talking about a community um, that is living with these continuous, you know, daily stressors that do stem from systemic racism and historical conditions. So um, especially with the young people, you know, when we focus on dismissing their experiences, then we fail to see discrimination and we fail to put the necessary supports in place. So what happens is that young people from these communities, you know, internalize that and accept it as something that is normal, right? Um, uh, so yeah, I don't yeah. know if Joseph, you wanna expand on that. Yeah, no, absolutely, Mandy. Like, and that's what I was saying, um, I guess, at the top of the hour when we were discussing, it's just that, like, institutional anti-Black racism and classism um, are such insidious and sinister forces within our society. And we don't really realize that the ramifications of these constructs manifest in sometimes very extreme behaviors being displayed across our TV screens when we're looking at homicide rates, but even in smaller things where we're looking at self-harm and things people are doing on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be something um, like a, a, an act of violence or like a, a someone physically doing something to you or you witnessing something physical. Mm -hmm. It could mm -hmm. simply be microaggressions that you've experienced over the course of a week. Right. And you've bottled those microaggressions such that you know, you're no longer able to cope with them because you're an adolescent, right? your brain isn't fully developed yet. You're, you don't have the language to really examine yourself and, and recognize the hollow roots from which those statements that were made to you are coming from. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. So Mandy, how does, how does this trauma that students from historically disenfranchised communities, communities that are um, lower socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. all these things that have a, a real impact on their experiences um, as a young person. How does this manifest on a day-to-day -day basis? How are they affected when they're, say, at school or with you um, for an after-school program? What's the manifestation of that trauma? You know, um, there's no easy way to articulate the relationship between, you know, trauma and, you know, academic success. You know, school failure um, isn't concentrated in marginalized communities randomly. It's just not a coincidence, right? Um, mm -hmm. So trauma does yeah. really get in the way of, of learning, of being able to function at school. Yeah. And our Canadian education system is a system that often operates from this color blindness lens where, where it says, mm -hmm. you know, pull yourself together and if you work hard enough, you can achieve it. Um, but for a lot mm -hmm. of young people, you know, their emotions, their history of traumatic stress and, and painful experiences, um, you know, the concept of working hard enough and just making it just doesn't regis register as something that is real or important. 
Um, mm, so yeah. yeah, and it's often challenging for you know educators to understand from this perspective because young people don't express their stress in a way that is easily recognizable. You know, they they hide their pain with behaviors that is often you know off-putting. Um, and you know, especially in high school, we have this expectation that, especially with you know racialized communities, that students should be able to self-control or you know be able to manage their emotions or be able to kind of uh, face adversity and the challenges. And um, we become more less tolerant of the struggles, um, and we like yeah. to blame and punish the student for responding in the only way that they know. Yeah, right. Yeah. Joseph, Absolutely. as a as a teacher, how does the lack of a trauma-informed kind of approach to teaching, how does that impact the expectations that teachers have? Oh, wow. Great question. Um, so the basic framework within the TDSB is equity, well-being, and achievement. And it's, it's well expressed, right? Like if we can have more equitable practices within a school um, institution, then that would hopefully cater to alleviating issues that prevent you from having positive well-being, and then you would increase achievement. And it's a really nice formula. Um, even though that's the framework, and I respect frameworks and principles and standards, it, it doesn't get down to the day-to-day the, the, the -day basic level of the exchanges people have within the building and the way we go about planning lessons and the way we go about um, handling lunch periods and snack periods and all the little tiny um, operations within a, a school. And all of those things would have to be reinterpreted from a trauma-informed lens. And so the way this manifests in schools, personally, from what I've seen, is that we often just react um, to a person's failure academically. Right. And when we react, it's too late. And, when, and in that reaction, we try to seek counselors and other people to talk to that individual um, to get them to a place where they can cope and then re-engage with the course curricula and then, you know, right off into the sunset with a degree or something. Yeah. And that's just not the best approach to this entire thing. We would have to begin with acknowledging the fact that people come from diverse backgrounds, have diverse experiences, and those experiences will not all be pleasant. And so mm -hmm. it's kind of naive for us to begin teaching um, for 75 minutes a day in a high school, for example, without recognizing that this child that you're dealing with is not going to receive anything substantial and is not going to be able to retain anything substantial if we're not first speaking to who they are as a person and what their experiences are and helping them reinterpret certain experiences they have. And also yeah. on teachers themselves, not to chew up more, much more time, we aren't trained in teacher's college um, to <laughs> listen correctly to young people when they're maybe, I don't know, acting out aggressively, but it really means that something happened that morning to them, right? Like that kind of trained air to be able to recognize, oh, this, this example of bravado doesn't mean this person's aggressive and hyper-masculine. It means that they're covering up something else that they've dealt with for the last seven months. Right. Yeah. So we're not trained that way. And so, yeah, achievement for those who are um, historically underprivileged, disenfranchised, continues to stagnate in the way of not being positive at all. Um, black and indigenous children operate at the lowest rungs of the achievement mm -hmm. um, spectrum. And they continue to, and they will continue to unless we change our pedagogy. Right. For all the academic um, material that is out there to support the idea of trauma and trauma-informed practice, I'm pretty surprised that so many professions, teaching included, and other <laughs> professions that deal one-on-one -on -one with individuals, it, it doesn't even contemplate 
some of these ideas. So, Mandy, how how does like the broader society, what, like, what's the expectation when they have students or people with um, impacts of trauma on them? Like, how how does the expectation of of society kind of gauge their success? Like, what's expected of them if they have been traumatized by something? Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'm just going to kind of pull out from uh, my own experiences. And so this is something that I ran uh, into a lot of problems at schools where, you know, especially with uh, young black males who are impulsive or disengaged, there's always this uh, assumption that, you know, they don't want, they don't care. And we have to kind of uh, displace them in behavioral uh, classes, right. Or behavioral uh, intervention classes. And there's, you know, and I find that myself that I have to always advocate that, you know, you know, this is a young man who is, has a, a clear history of, tra- you know, traumatic uh, experiences, and he's just, you know, acting um, to his traumatic responses. But there's always this um, pushback from administration of like, you know, well, what's wrong with this? You know, this idea of, yeah, well, he's impulsive, and this is what he needs to do is and the idea of labeling him that is okay, right. And for me, it, it's, it's, there's always this disconnection, because I have to try to explain to them that, you know, what does it look like when we take a young black male, and we tell him, that the way he's behaving is wrong or we tell him that the way his energy is too strong and we kind of label him label him you know that that young man starts to internalize that message right um Mm -hmm. so i feel like you know we have a lot of work to do and and you either understand the concept of of looking at somebody through a trauma-informed lens or you don't and i feel like we aren't there yet yeah well this the conversation is going excellently so far Mm -hmm. um i'm gonna do like a little like midway point of the show and just ask mandy um what's a song that reminds you of your experience in school when you were either in high school or elementary school and do you mind telling us a bit about why yeah um the 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 first thing that i connect with and it's i don't know if it's going to be a a sad story but it's something that i really connect with and it's uh i'll be missing you by uh puff daddy old name puff daddy but um it's a great song yeah it's a great song <laughs> so it, it kind of brings back all these uh different emotions um and i don't know if i should go into a backstory about it but um you know part of my experiences growing up was very difficult you know i came to this country as a refugee and it wasn't one of those experiences where you're welcome to into canada with open art open arms um you know it took almost a decade for us to be canadian citizens so in between that um you know there was a lot of issues with our claims so we had to cross the border and into the states live there for three months at a time uh, at a refugee shelter in the projects um and re-enter canada to uh seek asylum um, and this happened twice. And I just remember this song as being part of my journey. And every time I hear it, it's this vivid memory and this flashback of my younger self, uh, who was always the yeah. underdog. I was always underestimated, labeled as a troublemaker. Um, you know, I had this special desk that I remember outside of a classroom where I was uh, <laughs> placed because I was disruptive, because I was impulsive. Um, and I spent a lot of my time at the principal's office doing in-school suspensions. So you know, I was that kid that <laughs> teachers would tell other students, don't hang out with her because she's a bad influence. Um, oh, yeah. And I internalized that message over and over again. And obviously I had the privilege of being a female. So um, that is a privilege in itself. Um, but, you know, looking back as a psychotherapist, I was only behaving in the only way that I knew without the support <laughs> this place. Um, and yep. especially as a young child, you know, who doesn't understand the world, who doesn't understand why she has to leave her friends in uh, continue to be isolated from the rest of the world as being different. And looking back, you know, this song is about loss. 
Um, it's about, you know, I was ex probably experiencing my own grief. Um, mm -hmm. And just to kind of take it further into my work with young men, you know, the idea of invisibility, uh, the idea of not to be seen, yeah. not to matter is not a new thing. You know, we felt it in our generation. I'm sure you felt it too, Joseph, where, you know, the, 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 yeah. we contributed to this concept of othering them, right? The lost causes, the troublemakers, yep. and it really does impact who yeah. they are today.
Joseph, what are what are some tools that are available to support people or students specifically with a vast range of different traumas? How how do you as a teacher support a student that you've identified as having a trauma that impacts them on a day to day basis? Yeah, so the status quo or conventional um, framework within which I would have to operate is that if there was some type of behavior that maybe a couple of teachers have flagged as maybe pathological or just something else going on that is um, atypical, we would then report it to the office and the office would then call in a social worker. That social worker would do um, some reconnaissance work, <laughs> gather information about the background and who, who they're friends with and all these other pieces, or they might already have a case file on that student. And then they would decide if they're going to bring in a counselor or they're going to send that um, particular student to a psychotherapist um, and then it would be out of my hands and there's no more engagement for me um, with that student if something was that explicit. Uh, personally, because there is no on the ground um, policy manifestation of what we should do when it comes to maybe trauma-informed pedagogy, I just kind of have developed my own way in which I engage with students and it's primarily through my nonprofit. So like if I am noticing that there's certain behaviors that I'm able to spot and recognize that these are symptomatic of something else happening, I will then refer them to my networks and to my organization and the people that I work with and my staff members um, to be able to cater to them in a variety of ways. And that, that's only if there's something really intense going on um, and that, but that doesn't necessarily, so I'd also warrant, uh, sorry, I'd also um, refer them to the school's um, agencies and bodies, but then also my own nonprofit work. Mm -hmm. And then just in my basic engagement with them in my teaching and learning, everything I'm doing is, is I'm curtailing all of my lessons so that it speaks to mental health issues. And so I'm lucky I, I teach in the humanities and social sciences. So every single course that I ever get, I'm able to, um, alter and craft it in a unique and creative way to speak to everyday real human issues that I know they're all going to face if they haven't already faced it now. But unfortunately, we shouldn't have one-offs like that, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, it's great that I'm doing that, but it, it should be something that should be duplicated. It should be a part of just the ecosystem of education, yeah. whereby we're all kind of leading with that kind of idea that our teaching and learning shouldn't just be mm -hmm. about acquiring credits and percentages. It should be about giving you the cognitive skills to deal with life um, from a sound uh, vantage. Right. I, I think yeah. you're, you're bringing up a great point and almost, um, I, I don't know if you spoke directly to it, but the, the deficits in school when it comes to mm -hmm. supporting uh, students with uh, trauma-informed practice or best practices. Mandy, how how if school isn't able to fully support students with those um traumas how can organizations community organizations best support those students um so even my role i you know i don't work for the school board i work for an organization and there was actually a need because we didn't have culturally responsive trauma-informed uh you know uh therapists or social workers inside the school so um you know part of my role was actually entering you know high risk um high uh population of racialized communities that go to these schools and, and act as that. And 
I had to let go and unlearn the Western practices that I was trained on because it wasn't working. You know, it didn't align with the realities or the circumstances of young marginalized men yep. and um, sorry, young people. Um, and I had to tailor my approach because there is not a one fit mall, uh, sorry, one fit all model and not all talk therapy works. You know, sometimes I have to kind of step outside of my role and go and shoot hoops with a young man so that he opens up with me, you know, and just being able to kind of adapt to that. Um, and especially, uh, you know, many educators advocate for more counseling and support for our students. But, you know, these resources are really limited in the capacity where we have yeah. professionals that are able are able to see, you know, through this racial, cultural, trauma-informed lens that includes um, historical manifestations of systemic oppression that has inflicted and continues to inflict um, pain and, and trauma on marginalized and racialized students. So I think we don't have enough representation and people that work from this specific lens. So, um, yeah, and there's, yeah, pretty much that's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of systemic barriers and um, historical traumas that are affecting black students, particularly, but also other racialized mm-hmm. groups and other disenfranchised communities. But I feel like COVID-19 has just thrown another mm-hmm. layer into all of this. Uh, Joseph, yeah. what what uh, what impact does that have on the trauma that that uh, people or students actually have already? Yeah, COVID-19 is simply just exposing decades of neglect when it comes to marginalized or underserved um, and disenfranchised communities. So what we're going to continue to see is a lot of a lot more issues um, stewing up within certain pockets of the city that are particularly racialized and of a particular class orientation. And it's just it's inevitable that this is going to happen. And it's interesting, the city, again, we just react, right? So the city and the province and federally, they're trying to react to um, what they know is an inevitable offshoot of COVID-19. But if they weren't equipped to handle it during peacetime, it's hard to see how they'd be able to properly handle it now when it's an emergency. Um, I mean, there's a chance that more funding could be put into acquiring the extra supports necessary to cater to people with these unique needs. Um, and as Mandy expressed culturally relevant responses, um, but it's only going to increase the amounts of um, traumatic experiences that I think people are going to incur and how they deal with that. We're gonna we're gonna see it's gonna play out before our eyes in the next six to eight months, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it just compounds the issues that were already there before and. We're on the ground level, so we're getting emails and messages and DMs from all the people that we know are struggling at home, from kids who have uh, parents that are abusive Mm -hmm. to other kids that are experiencing neglect because they don't live with their parents and they live with someone else and those people aren't treating Mm -hmm. them right. So we're going to see all of this play out. And while this is all happening, they still have to attend online virtual learning um, yeah that's right and they're expected to get their credits because i'm teaching these classes uh four hours a day so it's just crazy how how i mean it's good that it's exposing these problems and hopefully it it gets it's it's so revelatory that we're just like yeah this is a larger issue than we ever thought it was we're gonna have to respond to it properly yeah this feels like a very trauma inducing event so what's the impact of the school closure loss of routine on lives of 
students who have typically been unburdened by things of this nature yeah. or other stuff. Mandy? Um, I've... I mean, right now we're experiencing a collective trauma with this pandemic. And I know there's this idea that COVID-19 doesn't discriminate. It doesn't see color. I keep hearing that. And, you know, what actually does, you know, because it's a privilege to have space in our homes and not be overcrowded. It's a privilege to have food in the fridge. Um, it, it's a privilege mm -hmm. not to internalize moms and dads stress about employment. And, you know, it's a privilege to be able mm -hmm. to have technology means to learn and do your homework. And how do you do that when you're against layers and layers of, of, of trauma. Um, and even, you know, young people with known vulnerabilities, you know, with COVID-19, it'll be even more amplified, you know, young people with at-risk vulnerabilities, even more with COVID-19. And, you know, young people mm -hmm. with emerging vulnerabilities, this is un like a trigger for COVID-19. So I don't know if I answered your question. Um, no, no, yeah. that's a, that's a great, that's a great perspective. Uh, Joseph, what about, um, how do you think this might impact students who, uh, prior to COVID-19, weren't exhibiting, I, I guess, signs of trauma? Is yeah. this, uh, I think Mandy just spoke to it, It might there might have been emerging traumas, but students who yeah. um, typically you wouldn't have questioned whether or not they, yeah. they, they do. Well, how do you think this will have an impact after or post-COVID-19? Yeah, well, from an administrator's standpoint, it's going to demonstrate how universal um, the experience of trauma is um, because you would have students maybe that were better at hiding or better at covering up or better at suppressing or oppressing certain traumatic experiences and not acting out in certain ways that um, I'm used to some use acting out um, in light of the ones that I serve. But this is definitely going to push certain individuals that I know personally in the school that I'm working in who you would never have thought they would be capable of reacting a certain way, to react a certain way. And hopefully that takes some of the, more of the stigma off of mental health issues. I know that we're, we're getting better and better as a culture in terms of just advertising and promoting um, the idea that positive mental health is something that we're all striving for mm -hmm. and that in all of our lifetimes, we're going to experience mental health challenges. But I'm really hoping that this kind of demonstrates how... Uh, comprehensive and perennial the issue actually is mm -hmm. and so it can maybe help us transform the way we approach teaching and learning on a regular day basis yeah. um, because what what now is happening there's like a drop off in terms of online engagement with um, actual academic materials so like we have in my school or at least my classes about 60 percent showing up and actually doing the work and but you have like 80 percent showing up when a teacher might go online and say, do you want me to show you how to cook this? Or do you want me to show you how right. to change this in your home? And, and these kind of like well-being, interactive, conversational, um, therapeutic sessions almost. And people are more engaged in those things than they are in the academic material, which okay. demonstrates that the academic material doesn't really speak to the needs of their lives, which is a problem with curriculum. Yeah. Right? And so yeah. it's exposing a lot of different things that hopefully we take stock of. For sure. And I guess one of the last questions I have is for you, Mandy. Um, so this the, the impact of COVID-19 to some extent on education has been the shift to um, a reliance on technology. I know the government is, uh, has been pushing for e-learning, distance learning, the ability to have the yeah. student relationship online. How is that, uh, in, in your experience, do you think that will positively or negatively affect um, the 
groups of students, particularly uh, marginalized groups or black students with traumas, how how might that impact their experience in school long term if it's a reliance on if there is a reliance on technology, if any yeah. at all? Um, and we're, I mean, we know that this uh, pandemic was just a reminder to, to know that, you know, the communities that are going to be disproportionately impacted. Um, and, you know, we're seeing the, the, the struggle right now with learning uh, online. You know, it's been a very, uh, it's been a deep challenge for a lot of young people uh, that are already struggling. Um, I, I'm, we're running into issues of, you know, Wi-Fi, not being able to access Wi-Fi or having the technology means to do it. Right. Um, so, you know, with you know, it, it has caused a major and unequal disruptions to education and student learning. So I don't know how that's going to play out um, when we go back to normal. And I say normal because I don't know what normal is going to look like after this. Um, but yeah, with this pandemic, we have to remember that we are dealing with a collective trauma and we need to go in there knowing that there will be students that will be disengaged they will be spacey you know limited attention spans dysregulated um and there will be Mm -hmm. learning gaps um so the canadian education system has to play a vital role here in supporting how young men sorry young men i always say young men because i always do work around that but young people um (laughs) after this pandemic uh and how do we rebuild the loss of learning and social skills because it's been right. very difficult even uh, for us who are connecting with other professionals online. Um, you know, so I just don't understand, you know, I don't see how we can continue to, to live through this virtual world and learn and adapt. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for, for that answer. And I think we're going to end it with um, Joseph giving us uh, his song of choice. That reminds him <laughs> of uh, his school days, as well as an explanation for, for why that brings up yeah. memories. Listen, Mandy's was so sentimental and thoughtful. I'm, I'm upset now that I made my choice. No, but I was laughing when Mandy was speaking because so much of her story resonates with mine. She talked about having a separate space in the classroom. My, I had a separate carpet cut out for me wow. for story time that I would be sent to to like listen to stories because I thought I was too disruptive and I was always making jokes mm-hmm. and like distracting people. I was too hyper. But um, yeah, a lot of the same experiences Mandy had, I had too. And, and my song of choice was Oh boy, by the diplomat. Oh. And <laughs> there's a lot of reasons for this. <laughs> One of those reasons is that I kind of fell in love with the diplomats when I was in grade 10. And grade 10 was just a huge year for me because in my, in my experiences of school prior to, I felt very comfortable with being myself and not necessarily capitulating to like normative narratives of what black males from my neighborhood are supposed to act like and dress like. But there was a bit of a shift where after having tried many times to just be my authentic self in different spaces and getting shut down from being my authentic self, I kind of just gave into this. And I was also dealing with a lot of things like my mom had lost her job. She, she owned her own school at one point and pretty much some things fell through with the people she worked with and she didn't have work anymore. Mm-hmm. And my dad's restaurant at the time got shot up. And so he lost his source of income. And I'm kind of estranged from my dad. He, I didn't grow up with him. But the fact is, all these things were happening. And around that time was also, let's say, zero tolerance policy. So a lot of the kids that I went to school with were being sent home and expelled, which then um, led to the um, year of the gun, um, infamous, infamously known as that. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of just gave in to the narrative that I was being fed for a long time, where it's like, 
there's only one way I'm going to survive in this environment and this community. And that's by throwing my all into being the biggest viewer I possibly could be. So like, listen, I would wear every type of fashion item that was common at that time, the airbrush t-shirts, the, the oversized um, pants and the Jordans. And, and I was actually doing some things that um, could have gotten me in a lot more trouble um, than they actually did because a lot of my friends were getting involved in those things. And the song kind of encapsulates that one year where my life really accelerated in terms of the neighborhood antics I was getting up to. And every time I hear that song, I remember the, that version of myself. And I remember what I was actually feeling while I was functioning as that version of myself. And it's such a strange dichotomy because there was a part of me that wanted to do so much more, pretty much what I'm doing now in the world. But I also didn't believe it was possible. And so that song kind of represents like the two sides and the two um, avenues I could have walked down and, and I did walk down eventually. And so when I hear it, it, it gets me, you know, excited and happy. I want to dance, but I'm also remembering like, man, that was a different me. <laughs> and it's funny to look back on what I could have became. Just blaze. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. Uh. Killer. All the girls see them. Look at his kicks. Look at his car. All I say is. Look, mommy, I'm no good. I'm so hood. Clap at your soldier. Sober. Then leave after it's over. Killer. I'm not your companion. Or your man standing. Hit me when you want to get rammed in. I be scrambling. With lots of mobsters. Shot for lobsters. Cops and robbers. Listen, every block is blocked. Block out. Telling ya. Put a shell in ya. Now we bleeding. Get him. Call us. He wheezing. He need us. He screaming. Shut up, he's snitching. This nigga's bitching, he's twisted. If Fed was listening, damn, I'm in trouble, need bail money. Shit, where the fuck is my? I got trust for my, that's why I fuck with my. That's my nigga, he gon' come get us. He got love for us, that's my. When he got caught with the, we went to court for the, just me and my, and we saying. Be on the block with my, with the rock of the, when the cops come, squalor. Yeah, this is for the sports car, Benitas, Jimmy's, PJ's, old school, 18th at the sports bar, 8 or 9 on the, holla at your boy, killer, holla. Listen, it's the DIP, plus the ROC, you'll be DOA, your moms will say, shit, ain't no stopping them, guns, we got a lot of them, Matter of fact, who start popping them? Then slap up this, clap up this, wrap up this, get them gats. Diplomats are them for the girls in the say. Yeah, yeah. Now when they see Cam in this, they say, damn. Santana's that, that squeeze hammers. Cannons and bandanas, glamours, we don't brandish. Glam at your man's canvas, then scream with your man's landing, and I'm back with my. Until that man advantage, I'm way in the Grand Canyon. These kids are grandstanding, niggas demand ransom over them grand scrambling. Well, fuck it, Van Dam him, Cam or Blam Blam him. Call up his, I'm down South Tannin. Mommy, I got the remedy. Tommy's up at the enemy. Homies and body, but now my body is feeling panicky. Killer and Cabo, we chillin' Morocco for real. We got no chichillas, though, a fill with them hollows, huh? It's the. I said it's the, I'm the
Thanks for joining us on this episode of School Talk. Where you can, subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're at it, let me know what you thought. If you have any questions, or even if you have an idea in mind for the show, let me know. I'm Alex Baddick, and I can't wait to continue our conversations on education in Ontario. Thank you.